Yes, Mr. President. Okay. The Bedford City Council Committee, the whole meeting will now come to order. Clark Carnabies, please call the roll. Council Bears. Present. Vice President Carabiello. Present. Council Knight. Present. Council Marks. Present. Council Morell. Present. Council Scarpelli. Present. Alco. Present. All seven members are present. 20-024, Committee of the Whole Meeting Notice, Tuesday, October 27th, 5.30 p.m., 2020, at 5.30 p.m., pursuant to Governor Baker's March 12, 2020, order suspending certain provisions of the Open Meeting Law, General Law, Chapter 38, Section 18, and the Governor's March 15, 2020, order imposing strict limitation on the number of people that may gather in one place. This meeting of the Memphis City Council, Committee of the Whole, will be conducted via, via remote participation to the greatest extent possible. Specific information and the general guidelines for remote participation by members of the public and or parties with the right and or requirement to attend this meeting can be found on the City of Medford website at www.medfordma.org. For this meeting, members of the public who wish to listen or watch the meeting may do so, do so by accessing the meeting link contained herein. No in-person attendance of members of the public will be permitted, but every effort will be made to ensure that the public can adequately access the proceedings in real time via technological means. In the event that we are unable to do so, despite best efforts, we will post on the City of Medford or media, uh, Medford Community Media website an audio or video recording transcript or other comprehensive record of proceedings as soon as possible after the meeting. To participate outside of Zoom, please email the City Clerk at A-H-U-R-T-U-B-I-S-E at medford-ma.gov. And that is to uh, City Clerk Adam Hurtabies. There will be a meeting in the Memphis City Council Committee of the Whole on Tuesday, October 27, 2020 at 5.30 p.m. The purpose of the meeting is for the Committee of the Whole to discuss the possibility of establishing an affordable housing trust in the City of Medford. The City Council has invited Shelley Goring of Massachusetts Housing Partnership and Roberta Cameron from the Community Preservation Committee to attend the meeting. For further information, aids, and accommodations, contact the City Clerk at 781-393-2425. Sincerely yours, John C. Falco, Jr., President. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking everyone for uh, coming to the meeting tonight. And uh, this here, because I, I did receive a number of questions, this is actually uh, from a resolution that uh, I had offered uh, earlier in the year, uh, back pre-pandemic. And uh, it passed, uh, I believe it passed the uh, City Council 7 nothing to go to Committee of the Whole to learn more about uh, uh, Affordable Housing Trust. So tonight we have Shelly uh, Goring, uh, with us, and um, she is, I believe, you're on the line. I'm sorry, I'm fogging up. She is with us. Okay, great. Thank you, Shelly. And um, so I figured uh, one of the big things, as we all know, is Medford's a great place to live, work, play, raise a family. And as we also know, uh, housing prices are through the roof in the greater Boston area. So, um, you know, one of the purposes of this uh, resolution, too, was just to kind of educate everyone on housing and whatnot. So Shelly's with us tonight, and I figured, you know, she can kind of go over uh, affordable housing trusts and kind of tell us, um, you know, how we can you know, set one up, uh, talk a little bit about the ordinance, and, you know, she can, of course, answer any questions that we have. Um, and, of course, there's this meeting here, there is a hard stop tonight because we have a meeting at 6.30. So we uh, have a pro uh, probably approximately like 50 minutes, uh, 53 minutes. So. Um, at this point, I would turn it over to, um, let's see, Shelly. I'm going to unmute you. Actually, Shelly, are you able, uh, 
Clerk heard me. I don't have the option to unmute. Okay. All set, Mr. President. Okay. Okay. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. Okay, so I'd like to share my screen. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to do that. I have uh, some slides that I'd like to go through a little bit, but I am Shelly Gary and I'm with MHP Mass Housing Partnership. So it says that I cannot screen share. Is that? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to set you up as a co-host. Hang on just a second. Thank you. So I am at MH, I work at MHP. I'm in the community assistance team and a lot, of, a lot of my work is helping to support communities in creating affordable housing trusts. Okay, are you able to see, I don't know why it's up there. Uh, we can see the screen, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so just a little um, caveat. I do have a baby with me. I'm hoping that she's going to be as good for us tonight as she was with Arlington a couple weeks ago. But I'm just wanting to share a little bit about Affordable Housing Trust, the Municipal Affordable Housing Trust statute in the state. I am with MHP Mass Housing Partnership. Some of you know about us. Some of you know a lot about us. But we are a quasi-state agency that's also organized as a nonprofit in the state. We, our overarching mission is to increase the supply of affordable housing all across the state. We're privately funded and our four legs of our stool are community assistance, the team that I'm a part of, where we provide technical assistance working um, in specifically in municipalities across the state. Our lending team is actually headed by one of your neighbors, Mark Curtis, who is on the call. We've lent over a billion dollars that have supported the creation and support and preservation of 22, over 22,000 units of housing. Our niche really is affordable rental housing. We have the one mortgage, our home ownership team. This is the most affordable mortgage for households earning up to 100% of the area median income. It's a fixed rate 30 year mortgage that is um, purchasers receive this through traditional lenders, but MHP manages kind of the back of the house of the program. And then our fourth leg is the Center for Housing Data. We have a team of folks that are collecting, analyzing, and sharing data, really trying to help support a, um, effective policy on both the local and the state level. So community assistance, we do a variety of trainings. We used to do these in-person, of course, now they're virtual. We do a lot of technical assistance for municipalities that have um, municipal land that you'd like to see reused for affordable housing and my work focuses specifically around housing trusts supporting communities and creating them and also um, providing resources just to be effective in your work so tonight i wanted to go a little bit over what a housing trust is some suggestions around operations and best practices and then the kind of activities that you could be funding as a housing trust so municipal affordable housing trusts are organized under municipal law chapter 44, section 55C. So they are public entities. They're a part of the municipality. It's not separate. It's not on its own. It really is a, a, a municipal entity. It's created by your local legislative body with a majority vote. And the purpose is to create and preserve affordable housing. So it really is a fair, fairly narrow purpose. It's, it's not a catch all of everything housing. 
So sometimes communities do create a trust thinking that everything housing can just be done by that committee, but it's not really how the statute's written. It's, it's really about creating and preserving affordable housing. And then it's led by a local board of trustees. These members are appointed locally. So in a city, they'd be appointed by the mayor, um, but the city council has oversight to be able to participate in that. And then on the bottom, you just see that just like every other municipal board, that the housing trust is subject to public procurement, design selection, conflict of interest, and public meeting laws. So these, this outlines the different steps of an affordable housing trust. So initially, of course, you decide that you wanna move forward and create one, but then it's deciding whether you're gonna pass the statute as it's written or whether you're wanting to modify that, um, perhaps specifying a little bit more about who should sit on the committee, um, what kind of expertise they should have. Maybe it's modifying the powers a little bit. So then you would wanna create your own ordinance. And then the legislative legislative body would accept the ordinance or the statute as is. This the ordinance would be submitted to the AG's office as we do within 30 days of passing it. And then you'd establish the board of trustees. So you would appoint your members and a little bit getting people acquainted as members and with the statute. And then um, the suggestion is to record the declaration of trust, which just outlines the powers of the um, the board and the um, land court registry will not allow a de declaration of trust unless it's uh, along with the deed of a specific property. So we have a lot of new trusts that will record the declaration of trust through the registry of deeds because they will allow a standalone document. And then setting up the trust fund account. This generally is a municipal account. And the last three, the dark blue, these are part of our suggestions for trusts as they're getting started. And I'm gonna expand on them a little bit later in the presentation. But it just kind of gives you an overview of some of the key steps to get started. So overall, really broadly, a housing trust can address the affordable housing needs in the local community, and they can support local control of different housing initiatives. So it's a board that's specifically assigned to support and create and preserve affordable housing. The trust is set up to be able to engage in the real estate market. So the trust can buy and sell property. And the trust, assuming that the restrictions aren't put on the powers, can act nimbly in the real estate market. So the trust, once they have funds in their account, they do not have to go to the city council. They don't have to um, get approval in order to work within the uh, real estate market. So they can, they can move more nimbly than the Community Preservation Committee, for example, has a process that has to go through the city council. It can, in a city, it's a little bit different than in a town, but it can slow down the process a little bit. So the trust can typically move more quickly than, for example, a Community Preservation Committee. And then the trust can um, collect funds from a variety of different sources. The trust statute specifies that there must be a minimum of five members. It must include the mayor in a city. The statute does not actually um, clarify. It does not say mayor or appointee, like a lot of statutes. This actually specifies the mayor. And the, more, the mayor does the appointments. The city council does have the ability to um, oversee this and to support it. Two-year terms. Um, most communities stagger these as we do with a lot of our boards and nonprofit boards as well so that you don't have 100% turnover any given year and then the members of the trust are public agents like with other municipal boards they're considered special municipal employees 
the statute outlines a variety of different powers that can be granted to the trustees. And, you know, as I said, there are some communities that um, create some restrictions on powers. For example, some communities may want a two thirds vote of the members if they're going to purchase, um, um, acquire real property interest. Uh, we have some communities that if the trust wants to borrow funds that perhaps that has to go through the board of selectmen. Um, we just, at MHP, we just try to encourage communities to be really, to really think it through and to be thoughtful about not limiting the trust too much because you can move away from a, a lot of the reasons of why we um, create affordable housing trusts, which is to be able to act really nimbly and um, be flexible in the market. I wanted to give just a case study because I think that Beverly could be an interesting example for Medford. They decided to create an affordable housing trust in early 2017 and they initially appointed the members and then they completed their updated housing plan. So they are over 10% on the subsidized housing inventory, but they were updating their housing plan because it had been, it's a bit outdated, it was several years old, and they wanted to make sure that they were starting on the, with the most current data of what was happening in the community, what the housing needs were in Beverly, are in Beverly. So they completed their housing plan and they used that to create established trust guidelines. So the things that they were going to focus on funding, given the needs that were identified in their housing plan. And they also developed a NOFA, a notice of funds available that they released in the end of the year, um, soliciting applications for funding. So they had a really thoughtful process where they didn't just jump in. And what we see is some communities will really just try to jump in and then they'll kind of flail because the needs are so great. Whereas Beverly was really thoughtful to, to make sure that they updated their data. So they really had a good sense of what was happening in the community, where the needs were. And then they spent time on thinking based on that, what are the kinds of things that we're gonna focus on and, and what is the structure of our funding gonna look like? So their trust has five members. They have the minimum number. The mayor sits on it. He's active, Mayor Cahill is active on their trust. They have the Director of Planning and Community Development on the trust and their Director of Municipal Finance. So three out of five members, three out of the five members are actually municipal staff, which is, I've, I haven't seen in any other community, that's unusual. And they have two at-large residents. It really is all across the board of how communities structure their trust. Many have seven members, some have nine members, um, some have more at-large, some have representatives from different boards. So it's, it's really a reflection of what the community sees as helpful and necessary. Their powers, they did have um, one restriction that conveyance of real property requires the mayor and the city council's approval. And then their funding initially has been inclusionary zoning um, payments in lieu of payments. And I don't think that they've yet received CPA funds, but that is Community Preservation Act funds, but that's definitely on the table for the future. But if you do decide to move forward, I think that Beverly could be a, an interesting and a helpful um, example for you. So as we're working in more and more communities, uh, we're seeing keys to success. It's not rocket science that to have for the trust to have some money, to have a vision of what their purpose is, have good leadership that's able to move projects forward and transparency, just having openness in the community about what you're doing. A, a great thing that we're seeing is that communities are getting more and more creative around funding their affordable housing trust, finding many more sources. It, it is still true that the Community Preservation Act, at CPA, is the most common 
um, source of funding, but it's not a given that every trust is going to receive CPA funds. Some of our community preservation committees hold very tightly to their money. Uh, but CPA is common. Out of all of our housing trusts, there are over about 113, 114 affordable housing trusts in the state, and about 80% of them have also passed the Community Preservation Act. So it's very typical that a community has both. Um, the yellow hexagon, we have several communities that they're in lieu of payments from inclusionary zoning are directed to their affordable housing trust. If it's not written into your ordinance, then it would go to the general fund and have to be transferred. But several of our communities have it written into their bylaw or their ordinance. Um, the, the green on the um, hexagon on the bottom right, the general fund free cash. We have several communities that have transferred free cash. Truro is an example of um, doing this several times. Um, the top green special bylaw or ordinance payments, there may be ordinance payments, special ordinance payments that could be directed to the trust. The blue hexagon, we have cell phone tower lease payments. We have a community on the Cape that directs these lease payments to their affordable housing trust. And then tax title sales, um, the, the revenue could be directed to the affordable housing trust. We actually have a city that is uh, sadly expecting an increase in foreclosures because of um, lack of tax payments. And they're working on a strategy where those um, buildings could actually be transferred to the trust and the trust oversee disposition as a way of funding the trust and they're working on a disposition plan. There could be developer negotiated fees. You just wanna be really cautious about how you do this. Uh, we don't want to get into extortion, but there was a community in Metro West before the housing crisis in 2008 that they were working with a developer on a friendly 40B development, a home ownership development. And they negotiated with the developer that of the market rate units, that $10,000 of the profit of each market rate unit would be directed to the community. I mean, do, yes, donated to the town. And the town decided to, to direct those funds to the affordable housing trust. So it was an infusion of three or $400,000 for their trust. We've seen our first municipal bond to support their affordable housing trust and Roberta can give you much more information about this than I can, but Medfield at the same, in the same spring that they created an affordable housing trust, they also um, passed a municipal bond of a million dollars to seed their affordable housing trust. And they don't have CPA, so they did not bond it against their Community Preservation Act funds. They uh, bonded against their own funds. And Medfield is also another interesting trust model where they're not just focused on distributing funds. Their trust is very active in multifamily um, developments in town that include affordable housing. So a, a really strong kind of activist role um, helping to shepherd developments forward. And we have our first town that has passed a tax override or liens in 2018, created an affordable housing trust and at the same town meeting voted to put on the ballot a $275,000 tax override. That's a permanent tax override. And that passed easily at the ballot. So their trust is in a really lucky position to have a guaranteed income each year that they can plan off of. And they've also transferred CPA funds to their trust. We have some communities that are looking at donations. It could be land donations, building donations, cash donations. And then um, some communities are starting to talk about short-term rental fees, um, the income from short-term rental fees for marijuana tax, if some of these funds could be directed to the trust. And you may know that there are multiple attempts in the legislature right now to pass real estate transfer fees. Boston, Nantucket, other communities are, are trying to create this path as well, this source of income that could be directed to their affordable housing trust. 
So the, the great news is that we're seeing communities be much more, um, much more creative and kind of assertive of finding different funding sources to support their affordable housing work. For new trusts, we really suggest that one, um, that, that if your housing needs analysis or if your housing production plan is dated, that you start by making sure that your, the data that, that you're working from is updated, is a, is a true reflection of what's happening in the community so that you have a good sense of where the needs are. And from there, then set some priorities. So we know that our housing needs, especially in the greater Boston area, are very significant. And it can be really overwhelming. And this is a volunteer board. So we would suggest that the board set some priorities, determine the key kinds of projects or developments that you're gonna work on or that you're gonna be funding initially. And then you could create benchmarks, it's not necessary, but a community like Somerville, their housing trust has determined that they want a percentage of their funds to go towards very low income households. And so they just set out that number as not only um, a reminder to themselves, but it also is an indicator to the community that they're a board that's interested in supporting very low income housing and households in town. And then in order to be effective, like this really needs to be a working board. It can't just be a board that people show up at. So you really need trustees that have something that they can contribute, that are gonna be able to show up to the meetings, that they really can make that commitment. A chairperson that is able to, to move things forward. And most of the more productive affordable housing trusts have some sort of paid staff support, whether it's technical, helping with a particular project or um, identifying projects or managing a project or administrative support to help move things forward. In many of our communities, there may be multiple entities that are working on housing or pieces of housing, affordable housing. Uh, this is just pulled from Manchester's housing production plan. They had a, a process where they identified a different housing strategies, some shorter term, some longer term, and then on the far right column, they identified the lead board that would focus on those strategies. So not only did it create some accountability, but it also helps to keep the boards from stepping on each other's toes. A process like this could be done with, um, in Medford, I know that you have, um, is it housing Medford, Medford housing, your advocacy team, it could be using that, it could, the housing authority could participate, maybe there's a nonprofit that's appropriate, maybe you have an affordable housing committee or partnership, but a similar kind of, kind of process could be done just to make sure that everyone has clear um, understanding of their roles, that you're complementing each other and not duplicating your efforts. Um, but it's, it's something that different communities do to make sure that um, everyone has an important strong role to play and that there's no, there's no, overly, um, no duplicating of efforts. And then we really urge housing trusts to be very transparent in the community. Um, you're using public resources. Um, you're working on projects that sometimes are controversial in our communities. So we encourage trusts to be good at reporting back to the whatever boards are um, identified as important in your community. Um, that when you do support a, a development, a project, um, whether it's with a letter of support, whether it's with funding, that you promote that effort, that you don't make it difficult for people to learn about what you're doing, um, to use the webpage and to have links, to have the members of the board um, up, up there so people know who's associated with it, um, to have your ordinance um, on this webpage so people can read through 
the purpose of the trust, but don't make it difficult for people to understand what the trust is about, how the trust sees its role in the community, and um, what you're supporting. And then we have some affordable housing trusts where they just want to be able to fund projects. So they just want to review proposals and then decide who to fund and how much. We have um, a growing number of trusts that are initiating projects, particularly working on um, disposing of municipal land for affordable housing. In most cases, the land is not transferred to the trust. Uh, in most cases, it's that the, the trust is participating in some of the pre-development work and in writing a request for proposals, reviewing applications. Um, it, in um, one community, the, uh, a surplus building was actually transferred to the trust and then they managed the process themselves. But we're seeing more of that. And then in this, um, during the pandemic, you likely know, including your community, um, that uh, many, well, well your, it wasn't your affordable housing trust, it was your CPC. But in many communities, affordable housing trusts have stepped up to help fund emergency rent assistance programs. So that's been a, a really integral, a really important role in a lot of communities in the last several months. And then in some communities, the trust wants to do both of these things. They, they want to fund projects, they also want to initiate. So it can be helpful at the um, beginning to determine what kind of approach you're going to take in your community. And then I'm going to spend some time just getting into the kinds of activities that the Affordable Housing Trust could fund. And some of the examples that I'm going to give are were technically funded by the Community Preservation Committee. Um, I'm using the language of CPA, the verbs acquire, create, preserve, and support because the Housing Trust statute was modified a few years ago so that all of the eligible activities under community preservation for community housing are allowable for a housing trust. So these two statutes are very closely aligned now. So an example of a choir is this existing apartment building in Barnstable, Cromwell Court. It's 124 units of housing. Uh, I believe that it was permitted under Chapter 40B originally, so only a percentage of the units were affordable. But in 2011, the nonprofit developer POA was able to use a half a million dollars of local resources to leverage additional additional resources to purchase the entire development and now almost almost all of the units have an, an affordability restriction in perpetuity there were a few that have remained market rate because they didn't want to displace anyone but almost all of them are now affordable in perpetuity so acquiring existing housing and making it affordable in the community in Sudbury and a, a, a variety of communities, the Housing Trust manages a small-scale homeownership program, so helping income-qualified households purchase existing housing units in town. Sudbury's their home preservation program, they've had it for several years. They um, are looking to um, help keep some of the more naturally affordable housing, some of the older, smaller, like ranches, capes, because Sudbury is a community that has a lot of teardown issues where these smaller, more modest houses are torn down and then a much bigger house is, is built in its place. So their program helps to identify a house that fits this model, that's this smaller, more modest type house. They negotiate a sale price with the seller. They run a lottery to see who's qualified and who's interested in purchasing the house. And then at the time of sale, the housing trust puts in the difference between the negotiated sale price and what makes that affordable, the house affordable to a household earning 80% of the area median income. So the last I heard, the subsidy was um, going above $225,000. So it's expensive per housing unit. 
they only add maybe two units a year um, but it is a way to help um, some households that are income qualified achieve home ownership in Sudbury it helps to save some of this older more um, modest housing they do work with the state under the local action unit program um, with DHCD so each of their units are added to the subsidized housing inventory and we have several trusts that are managing programs similar to this uh, we have many trusts that are helping to support affordable housing development so this is a, a really fantastic development in Yarmouth so on Route 28, you likely know the uh, many motor lodges that are underutilized or empty. And the town started by rezoning the section of Route 28 to allow for multifamily housing development. So it was not permitted under Chapter 40B. It was under their own zoning special permit. Um, a developer, Dakota, has now built 69 units, affordable apartments, one, two, and three bedrooms. They used low-income housing tax credits. So when you see 60% of the area median income, AMI, that tells you that there are low-income housing tax credits in the deal. And then the state requires a percentage of, of the units, a few of the units to be affordable, deeply affordable at 30% AMI. And in this case, the housing trust put in over $2 million into the deal, which comes out to $30,000 per unit. So one, the town rezoned the area to allow for multifamily, and then two, the town put in a huge amount of local funds. And those things are likely what contributed to the state funding this project on the first round of low-income housing tax credits, which is pretty rare. And the project has, um, came online last year, and um, it's, it's a really nice development. And another one, just using Beverly again, um, so they, the Housing Trust put out their NOFA, their, their um, Notice of funds available, and one of the projects that responded was Harbor Lights Anchor Point. And so it's a proposal of a site that the town did um, designate as a 40R district, and um, that is the designation. I, I know that some of you know this, and you maybe even have some districts in Medford, but it's uh, encouraging multifamily, it's requiring multifamily or higher dense development, generally near some sort of um, uh, transportation in this case it's near commuter rail and then not only is Beverly going to be receiving 77 units of affordable housing to benefit their community and their lower income residents but then the state also pays initially up front for um, the units that are permitted that are allowed that are um, a part of the designation and then once the units are actually built then the city will receive additional funds from the state. So it's a, a, it's a pretty big win for the city. It does have low-income housing tax credits, so the ceiling, the income ceiling is 60% of the area median income. Their CPC put in $250,000, their trust put in $200,000. And this project is moving forward at this point, trying to move forward. We have many examples of reusing existing buildings for affordable housing. Sometimes these have a historic component. Um, many times they don't. We have a shoe shop place in Middleborough that had been a shoe factory. It's now rental housing. Stevens Corner in the center was an underutilized nursing home. It's now 42 units of rental housing. And then there are many examples of um, older schools being redeveloped into, into housing, affordable housing and market rate housing as well. The Rockport example is age-restricted. It's senior housing, senior apartments. As you can imagine, um, these projects are oftentimes less controversial than new construction. 
um, reutilizing an existing building. Um, so for some communities, it's, it's a great strategy. And then we have a variety of CPCs and trusts that are working towards preserving affordability in developments. So with some, a lot of affordable housing, the affordability restrictions are actually set to expire. And this development in Bedford, 96 units, the restrictions were set to expire in 2018. The nonprofit developer POA was able to use a significant amount of CPA funds, $3 million to purchase this development. And now all of the units are affordable in perpetuity. So more and more communities and trusts are helping to um, provide oversight to make sure that units aren't lost, that when um, when restrictions are set to expire, that, that the trust is an entity that can help engage with the owner and um, help assure that the restrictions are continued. And then under support, some of the activities that we've seen historically that are allowed is if there's a municipal, a municipal site that you're interested in seeing possibly for housing that the trust could help support some pre-development work there. Um, helping to update housing plans, the trust could um, use some resources to do that. And then rental assistance, as you know, that your CPC has been helping to fund that locally. And that's something that the trust could help support as well. So just kind of wrap up a little bit that I always try to encourage local communities that you, when you're creating a trust, when you're starting out, that you consider the local infrastructure, the needs and the resources that exist in the community, and that you really work off of that um, and partner with your existing entities, your existing infrastructure, that you develop goals that really reflect the identified needs. And that's why we always encourage to make sure that you have updated data. And it's not because everyone's convinced by data but because when we're using public resources, it just makes sense to make sure that we're really addressing the need that's there and not perhaps some bias or sometimes in our communities, we wanna take the path of least resistance, but that's not always necessarily the, um, a reflection of the real need in the community. And then as a volunteer board, you wanna be real about your capacity, that it's uh, afford the housing needs in our communities are very big and you're a volunteer board so just be realistic about what you can what you can do at, at at a time mhp is full of all kinds of online resources uh, these are just a few the data town with all kinds of data points for your community that you may be familiar with housing toolbox talks a lot about how financing affordable housing and zoning and affordable housing trusts and then the housing trust guidebook as well and lastly, I, you should also see me and my team at MHP as a resource as well. We, we want to support Medford as you're looking to move forward with supporting affordable housing. And if you decide to create a trust, we would love to help support you in that as well. Thank you, Shelley. Should I just stop sharing my screen? I'm sorry? Should I stop sharing my screen, just go back to Yes, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for your presentation. Yeah. Very informative. The baby's doing great. I <laughs> didn't hear <Yeah>. her once. <laughs> and congratulations, by the way. Fingers crossed. Uh, so I don't know if there's questions, if you want to do, or if Roberta has some things that she's wanting to say. We do have a number of sure. questions, I believe. So we're going to start off with um, Councilor Marks. Uh, th thank you, Mr. President, and Shelley, thank you very much for that uh, thorough presentation. That was excellent. Uh, thank it, you. Was, it was very helpful. 
Um, in the city of Medford, we're one of just a few communities that charge a linkage fee for uh, new construction over a certain size or demolition or uh, rehab over a certain size. Um, and I'm not quite sure if those fees, which are dedicated fees for, I believe, infrastructure improvement, could be used for uh, the creation or funding for um, a, a trust fund. And I think that's something we as a community need to look into. Uh, my question to you, and I was happy to see it in the presentation, is that I, I actually work for DHCD, and I work with homeless families. And we have uh, thousands of homeless families in Massachusetts, uh, some from the city of Method, that affordable housing is not attainable. And uh, what we're speaking about tonight is not attainable. And uh, I was happy to see Beverly, their Harbor Light Community Partners project, included uh, 15 units for homeless families. Is that something that could be incorporated uh, into the mission uh, or the setup when we set up an affordable housing trust? Because in my opinion, if we're gonna look at uh, the housing crunch, uh, the very base, the bottom level of families that are experiencing homelessness right now, and uh, they too uh, need a place to live and uh, much of what's out there right now uh, is unaffordable. And, and that's waiting on a public housing list or uh, trying to get an affordable uh, unit. And I was wondering if that's something we can incorporate uh, within a mission statement that our mission is not just to provide affordable housing, but also to provide units for homeless families. And my second question is, um, uh, is that if we do get into um, whether we're going to be a lender or a purchaser or whatever it might be, can we uh, uh, make sure, are we uh, able to make sure that whatever we do is solely within the parameters of the city of Method? Is that something that most communities do or is that something that uh, is done community by community? So the first around homeless, the homelessness, um, so but I don't know if you know, but Beverly, Salem, and Peabody have a tri-city agreement around addressing the homeless needs in their region. And so um, this is part of Beverly. Beverly has helped to fund um, a few different projects, and Salem has done a great job too. So it's an intentional agreement between these three cities. Um, so just as kind of some background, um, we do have, and I, I just, I had to cut down this presentation to fit into the time, but also because over um, Zoom, you know, it's it can be hard to go on and on and on and on. It's hard enough in person. But we do have communities that are funding enhanced single room occupancy units specifically for formerly homeless people. There are some really great examples of this by Valley CDC in Northampton, and they're trying to do a development in Amherst as well. So that is, that's absolutely a model that exists, that we have communities that have funded that and affordable housing trust could fund that kind of housing in Medford. Uh, you could have a priority to, um, the trust could have a priority to um, support people who are homeless. Somerville is an affordable housing trust that's done quite a bit of work in this area because it's a, one of their priorities. So that, that could absolutely be included in somehow in the affordable trust, the affordable housing trust. It, and how formal you make that, um, it, it could just depend on what you think is, is necessary or meaningful. And in terms of lending, uh, most of our affordable housing trusts only lend locally. Um, 
we do have some funding of developments outside of the local community on the Cape. So we have a, a, several communities that have actually funded developments in another community. Um, you can specify that the funds are local. Some communities do. It's a, it's a, it's a local choice. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know some of my colleagues have questions as well. Thank you, Councillor Marks. Councillor Pierce. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, and thank you, Shelley. Great presentation. Uh, I just had a quick question on the difference between Municipal Affordable Housing Trust and a Community Land Trust and whether, um, you know, what are the different duties and differences and, and whether they coexist in any communities? Um, so we do have some we do have some communities that have a land trust and an affordable housing trust. Um, so generally, an affordable housing trust, a municipal affordable housing trust, is generally um, distributing funds because it's a volunteer board. Um, we advise against the trust being a developer or even necessarily holding um, housing or to do that very carefully because it's expensive. Um, and difficult for an affordable housing trust for, for a volunteer board. And I can't speak specifically to how land trusts work, but we do, like Amherst is a community that has a housing land trust and has an affordable housing trust. And they have, they've identified just different roles that the land trust is more about holding, holding housing and the affordable housing trust is more about advocating for um, like the disposition of municipal land for, for affordable housing development they are having they have resources that they're distributing they've created the the emergency rent assistance program so they've identified different roles but i think that housing and land trusts and some of you likely know more about this than i do is more about um, holding um, building housing on land that's held by the trust so it's a, it's a different intent got it thank you very much shelly thank you council bears we have council morell then council and i council morell Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, thank you, Shelley, for this presentation. So um, going off kind of the question, the line of question Councillor Marks was going. Um, so once the trust is established, it's essentially up to the trust to decide, I, I guess, its priorities, whether it's going to be a funder versus initiator, or is that, is there language that can be put in the ordinance that, that narrows that focus, or it's really once the trust is established, um, then those individuals decide the focus, ideally, as you mentioned, working you know, with the city to see the best approach, but it's really under the trust to decide how they um, tackle this problem. So I would um, advise against putting any of that formally in the ordinance, just because um, over time, the needs change and your priorities may change. Um, so you wanna be careful that the ordinance isn't too directive. Um, mm -hmm. At least I would suggest that you that you be cautious about that. The trust should be, and it, it should be, really should be helping to implement the municipality's vision and goals around affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So ideally the trust is not just a separate entity, it's not a silo on its own, but it's really um, engaging the community, working with the community development department, um, looking at the needs in the community, helping to identify those, and then setting priorities based on that. So. In most communities, there, as the trust is creating guidelines, some actually hire a consultant and create a five-year action plan. It just depends on the community and how planned out the community is, or how how much um, how much in detail the community wants to be. But usually, there's some sort of community engagement process where there's some sort of forum, or maybe the trust has 
draft guidelines. Um, Brewster is an example of this, that their housing trust created some draft kind of goals. And then they had a, a forum, a public forum, where they invited people in the community to come to listen to their priorities and to comment. Um, so, you know, we would encourage that the, that, that the process be that the trust is engaging the community and really working with the community development department with the needs that have been identified, not just with them, but that have been identified in the community and then to really help move forward with implementing some of those. Okay, th thank you. Yeah, that was my um, trying to understand how this newly established entity would make sure it's reflecting the needs of the community. So that addressed that, thank you. So you could put in the ordinance, I don't think I've seen this, but you could put in the ordinance some guidance around what the way that the, you know, like the CPC statute does say that there should be a public hearing. So there could be some guidance to um, help, helping um, if you want to have some sort of process around the trust receiving public input or working with the community development department, you, you could put some of that and I would just, um be hesitant to put anything too specific about the exact kind of priorities just because the needs change in our communities okay great thank you thank you councilor morrell we have council Knight, then vice president carviello council Knight. uh thank you very much mr president thank you for your presentation um in terms of establishing a unit that's affordable in perpetuity as a private lender um do we know how these type of properties are taxed or these properties <coughs> are taxed if um if we have funded uh, the construction of affordable units through an affordable housing trust that's been funded through tax dollars that's given to a private developer to create affordable units. Are these units assessed at a fair market value or are they assessed at a reduced rate? So if, if housing units are uh, have an affordability restriction on them, then they should be they should be assessed based on that, that that should be um, not market rate because the value isn't market rate. If it, if it was to be sold with the restrictions, you wouldn't get market rate price because you're not getting market incomes. So communities do this a little bit differently, um, but it's generally a negotiation of how to, um, how to assess the property given the affordability restrictions. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you, Council Knight. Vice President Caviello. Thank you, Mr. President. Shelley, thank you um, for the presentation. Shelley, would it be possible to get a copy of um, the uh, what you uh, showed us this evening? Yes, I will send it to, should I send it to Roberta as a PDF? Um, yeah, whoever you want to send it to, or, or directly to you. Um, if, 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 you can send, if you can send it to me, I yeah, can forward it on to the Council and to the, uh, to the uh, clerk as well. I have a, so my question is, um, who will who's going to identify uh, these properties in, in our city and who, who who's going to be the negotiating party that, that does this are you asking me yes um, so uh, well, I, I will I can't say exactly because that would be Medford figuring some of that out but we do have trust that work closely with the town or city planners to identify potential sites for affordable housing sometimes it's looking at municipal but oftentimes it's also looking at potential private sites as well um, how much that affordable housing trust engages in that work is a uh, it's just up it's up to the the board so some are very active in trying to identify sites and being really proactive on that and others are are not quite as engaged in that so that that really is a local decision and a decision of the trustees of 
of how engaged they are with that that piece well i i say that because um we have very little uh, uh city-owned property that's i think would be for sale at, at this particular time unless i've you know i've missed a couple of pieces uh so that's uh i'm assuming that uh they're going to have to go out to the private market to buy these homes or apartments or whatever the so uh, and so who determines that will it, will it be the mayor or will it be the trustees of the uh, uh of, of the trust well the mayor will be sitting on that the mayor will be sitting on the trust so it could be something that they do as a team with the community development department so i'll just give an example that manchester is such a different community than um, Medford, but their town planner actually supports their affordable housing trust and they've worked together of a, looking at a map of Manchester and identifying sites, both public and private, that might be suitable for affordable housing. So they've actually mapped out the community and then they're taking steps to move forward on certain sites. So, uh, you know, if the if Medford's affordable housing trust wanted to do something similar and to be really proactive of trying to engage developers on different sites, they could do that. They could also um, accumulate funds and then do like Beverly, where there's a notice of funds available and wait for let developers submit proposals. So it really how exactly how the affordable housing trust works is really up to that body. So is that helpful? Bit? So. Where does, where does our council fit into this uh, plan? Where does what? Where does our city council uh, fit into this? I, I know you mentioned um, uh, earlier in the thing that um, that uh, some city council have, have some say over what gets purchased and done and some don't. Is, is that something that we, we would have to um, put into our um, plan? So you would you would just have to uh, you know likely in some communities they put together a committee to work on an ordinance for an affordable housing trust and you can decide how to set that if you wanted to do that you could decide who is on it and then they work through kind of a draft and they could get feedback from the city council from the mayor from whoever you think is appropriate to help work through those but that that would be a local decision that you would have to you would just have to talk through those different questions and decide what works best for Medford. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Caviello. Shelley, if I may, uh, you had mentioned Beverly as a good example to look at. Are there any other communities comparable to Medford that you think would be beneficial to look at? Um, so some of it would kind of depend on what you also think is <coughs> beneficial. Like you might think that Somerville is too big or urban, but Somerville has some interesting, is doing some interesting work. Um, Beverly just comes to mind because okay. I think probably size ish is somewhat similar and um, some characteristics seem similar. Um, I could give a little bit more thought to and pass on maybe to Roberta and to um, President Falco other examples that, that I think might be helpful. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, Roberta, I think you may have had your hand up before. Did you want to speak? <laughs> Let me. Uh, Mr. Clark, could you uh, unmute Roberta? I can't unmute her. Thank you very much. That was a wonderful presentation, Shelley. I think that, that you really hit all the points that we needed to um, grasp to get a better understanding of how this works. And I just wanted to um, suggest that if you, um, I, I think 
uh, as um, President Falco already suggested, if you send him the presentation, you can share it, but I can also share it with members of the Community Preservation Committee as well, and it might be something um, that we want to use as a resource, possibly um, on our housing resources page on, on the city's website, um, possibly. So um, we might be able to make this available for, for more people to view it. Um, and the other thing I, I wanted to mention, um, as a model community, the city of Salem is a community that I feel like provides a great model for the city of Medford. So that's, that's another um, community that I would highly recommend that we look at um, what they're doing in Salem with their affordable housing trust. Um, and I don't really have anything to add tonight to what Shelley has said. I really look forward to having conversations um, with city councilors and with the Community Preservation Committee about how we might be able to form a partnership um, through an affordable housing trust like this to be able to make the best use of our local resources. Thank you. Thank you, Roberta. Okay, any other questions from the council? Everybody's good? Mr. President? Oh, Adam, I apologize. I apologize. I did not see your hand up. Council Knight. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Um, presently, we have an inclusionary zoning ordinance that was enabled last term. And uh, this ordinance requires a certain number of units uh, be affordable based upon the size of the development. And uh, during the deliberations last term, we discussed um, establishing an affordable housing trust fund at that time. And there was a concern that developers would have the opportunity to buy their way out of creating affordable units if we allowed them to do so uh, by way of <coughs> an affordable housing trust. And instead of having them create the affordable units, make a payment to the affordable housing trust. So we specifically excluded um, an affordable housing trust uh, during the discussions last time on the creation of, during last term, during the creation of our inclusionary zoning ordinance uh, for that reason, because we didn't want developers to have the opportunity to buy their way out of their obligation to create affordable units in the community and uh, create gentrified developments and gentrified neighborhoods without having an affordable component to them. Um, now, I also understand that affordable housing trust funds can be funded in a variety of different ways. Um, would it be possible for us to maintain our restriction on not allowing developers under our Inclusionary Zoning Act from buying their way out but still putting together an affordable housing trust fund that would uh, have a worthwhile um, ability to generate the necessary funding to make it a, a worthwhile entity, I guess is the question. So, uh, you know, we have some communities allow in lieu of payment because um, in some cases that's with the really small developments, it may not be financially feasible, so they do allow, um, but then with larger developments, they require inclusionary. So it in how you decide to do inclusionary zoning, that's that's your choice, your decision. And um, I do have a colleague, Katie Lacey, who knows much more about this, but if you aren't, if you're seeing units being built under your existing policy, then perhaps you keep it as it is. Um, if you're not seeing units created, then it could be um, something to revisit if you really wanted to actually produce units, affordable units. Um, you could have an affordable housing trust fund that a different way and keep your inclusionary zoning as it is if that seems like it's working that's completely a, a local choice that, that, that it's just that um, i just wanted to give different examples that some communities do allow inclusionary um, and in lieu of payment in some cases and um, swam scott is one one of these communities and so in some cases they've allowed in lieu of payments and those funds have gone to the trust. That's just one way to fund a trust. 
So, in, in Mr. President, through you, um, in her expert opinion, um, how long is long enough uh, to determine whether or not our inclusionary zoning ordinance is working? Um, you know, it was only implemented, what, maybe 18 months ago, yeah, if yeah. that? Um, you know, so that, that's just the question that I have is, you know, how long um, would she suggest we monitor this <coughs> units and develop, number one, and number two, um, would that be a accurate snapshot of what to expect um, in a normal world versus a COVID world? Shelly, would you have an opinion on that? Um, I'm sorry, Ruby got a little, I got distracted. Um, <laughs> no, no worries, no worries at all. Uh, the question was how long would you uh, monitor Council Knight, I, I just want to make sure I get this. Uh, how long is long enough to determine whether or not um, a practice is working, I guess? Um, you know, we how, just, how long have you had your inclusionary zoning policy? Less than two years. Have you produced any units yet? That I can't answer at this point in time. I think uh, the three large scale developments that came into the community. Yeah, we definitely have. We definitely have. We definitely have. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's not that long to have an inclusionary zoning policy. So if, if you have or haven't, if you have produced units, then congratulations. If you haven't in that time, that's not that much time, especially given this year has been so extraordinary. Excellent, thank you. But my colleague, Katie Lacey, if you wanted to connect with someone who's done a lot of research around inclusionary zoning <coughs> policies in the entire state and has pretty good sense of what are the elements that help policies be more effective, be effective to actually produce units, She's fantastic, and I could direct you to her. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Let's see. We are, oh, 6.30. Any questions from the council? No? Okay. No questions from the council. Uh, Shelly, thank you so much uh, for all your help for the very informative presentation. Roberta, thank you very much as well. We thank everyone for joining us tonight on the call. Uh, on the motion of council tonight to Second. adjourn the meeting. Seconded by? Second. Council of Bears, Clerk Hernabees, please call the roll. Council Bears. Yes. Vice President Carabiello. Yes. Council Knight. Yes. Council Marks. Yes. Council Morell. Yes. Council Scarpelli. Yes. President Falco. Yes, seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. The meeting is adjourned. Thank you.